0: If it's based on an engine failure, if there's a high likelihood that you're going to force land, it'll get transferred to us.
1: You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 87 of the Rotary Wing Show. This is a podcast where we get to meet people from around the globe that are in the helicopter industry or that, like today, we get to learn a bit more about the other agencies that we might interact with in our profession. There is always more out there to learn so that you can get better at what you do. I'll introduce today's guest shortly. And when we finish up here and I cut across the interview though, I'll play the alarm sound that you'll hear when an emergency locator, transmitter or beacon activates. It's a pretty unique alarm, but some people tuning in may have never heard it before. And for the rest of us, it's probably quite a good thing that it's an alarm that thankfully we don't get to hear too often. So that's just a warning to adjust your volume if you need to. Luke Branley is a Senior Search and Rescue Officer with the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, or AMSAR, It it is abbreviated. Despite the name, this is the agency that is tasked with reacting to any alert of an aircraft in distress in Australian airspace or the activation of an emergency locator beacon. I first met Luke at the Oakey Army Airfield, where we were posted together on Iroquois. Luke has done a heap of things since, and which we'll talk about shortly, and after getting out of the Defence Force, Luke has been involved in search and rescue for a number of years. I tracked Luke down recently, and he very kindly was open to recording a chat. What I thought would be a good topic was to look at what happens behind the scenes in the event that we ever have to jump on the radio and declare a mayday ourselves, or if we have to activate an emergency locator beacon, or if an aircraft that we're holding a time for becomes overdue. While what we discuss is sometimes specific for the Australian search and rescue region, the general outlines can be pretty similar for whatever search and rescue organisation is active in the areas that you fly in. Globally, 121.5 megahertz for VHF and 243 megahertz for UHF are reserved as the aircraft emergency frequency. This is also known as guard. While 406 megahertz is the satellite frequency, the following is what you'll actually hear on the VHF and UHF when an emergency locator transmitter is activated, and then we'll jump across to Luke. Luke, can you just give a bit of a description of your role there at the moment at the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, and what you sort of get to get up to? A
0: senior search and rescue officer there uh, my role is to lead the small team in coordinating incident response search and rescue incident response. I am qualified as a search and rescue mission coordinator so when we do get jobs come into the center if they're aviation specific or related I'll be the one that coordinates the uh, the response there and I also provide aviation expertise and subject matter expert uh, knowledge to the maritime end of the room for maritime sar.
1: And for our purposes, let's talk about your own helicopter background. When did you first get into aviation?
0: I was a, an Air Force cadet going through school, and I guess that gave me the taste for it. But the first time I sat in an aircraft was when I commenced pilot course with Defence Force.
1: Dead set. So that was actually your actually very first first go at it? Yep.
0: First time I sat at the controls was the first flight at TAMWA, and then... Uh, I was already Army by that stage, and then from there I went up to Oki and transitioned on the helicopters.
1: Okay, and you went through, and I guess you got to the unit where we had a little bit of crossover flying QE's. But just, I guess, broad brush, uh, in terms of deployments and experience there uh, and what you did in the Army, what were some of the highlights for you?
0: So I obviously came across you at uh, A Squadron on QE's. I flew there for a couple of years before going down to ADFA as a training developer. And then uh, to come back into flying, I ended up picking up a role with the Air Force flying PT-9s in forward air control. So I did two years there. Really interesting stuff. Basically, the primary role was to teach forward air control skills to the Defence Force, to, to members of the Defence Force. But it also meant that I got to fly in a forward air control role and coordinate fast air.
1: Fantastic. So you are training, I- training the guys on the ground who are calling in the jets as well as actually doing that yourself then
0: yeah yes we trained all the basically any any service that needed to, to have that capability we would train them up and then part of that was obviously we would fly missions in support of the training and we'd also we'd develop our own skills as forward air controllers
1: i don't know if you do it anything after that, but we'll talk about it, but it's a pretty good segue into some of the roles you're doing there at, at amsa at the moment because being a FAC or a Forward Air Control, it's, it's one of those things where you're integrating with a whole heap of different agencies.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah. So that part of my background and in, in, in that period that I spent at Forward Air Control gave me the ability to understand separation, coordinate aircraft, and do it all from a dislocated position.
1: Okay, was that your last posting?
0: No, from there I went back to Oki and transitioned onto the Kiowa for a small, small stint uh, instructing students. And then from Oki, I basically discharged to AMSA.
1: Awesome, because yeah, with people listening, we haven't actually caught up since we uh, we flew together. So yeah, that, that history there, I didn't know. mate. you've been busy. It's all time, awesome. Luke. The uh, so the organisation with you, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority. You know, given the fact we're talking about aviation, did AMSA always have responsibility for aviation search and rescue as well, or is that something that has you know come together more recently?
0: So back in the 90s, Maritime and Aviation Search and Rescue were, were managed separately and Maritime aviation, uh, maritime Search and Rescue was coordinated by the Maritime Safety Authority and Aviation Search and Rescue was actually looked after by Air Services Australia. In 97, the two roles were brought together and brought under the Australian Maritime Safety Authority to look after both Maritime and Aviation SAR so in order to make the responses more efficient um, and to, to have the two roles integrated.
1: Let's talk about the, the the coverage. Whenever you talk to ATC, they they're, they're always big in Australia. Talk about the you know the huge airspace that Australian ATC looks after, because we look after I guess subcontract you know, some of the Papua New Guinea's airspace and and a lot of the oceanic and maritime airspace. Is it a similar setup for you guys? How how big's the the search area that AMSA looks after?
0: The, the search and rescue region is loosely based on the same air traffic um, boundaries. So we cover 53 million square kilometres, which works out to be a tenth of the surface of the Earth. To put it into context, we basically cover halfway to Africa, halfway to Indonesia, halfway to New Zealand, and all the way to the South Pole. Obviously, covers all of the Australian continent with significant portions of the Indian, Pacific and Southern Oceans.
1: So it's a huge range because we've got icy polar waters and then we've got the deserts in the middle of Australia uh, up to you know, highlands, I guess, in, in Papua New Guinea and places like that. So that's a, not only a huge geographic spread, it's a, a huge, uh, I guess, environment spread.
0: It is, and we're probably one of the only RCCs that does cover such a broad range of environments.
1: What's the, the boundary then, I guess, between air services and, and you guys? Is there a, a kind of a clear delineation of responsibilities there?
0: There is. So we work off a, a memorandum of understanding that delineates who fulfills what role and uh, and where they do come together. And with that, we have sort of, I guess, clear boundaries about what's their responsibility and what's ours, but it also allows us to work together pretty seamlessly.
1: So do you have someone from, say, your services embedded there in your coordination centre or vice versa?
0: We don't. What we do is we organise pretty regular liaison with them and engagement activities. We... Uh, you know, visit them at, at Brisbane and Melbourne and they come and visit us and we cross-contaminate knowledge so that we all have an understanding of how we work together. But we, we talk on the phone to them numerous times every shift. They're on speed dial and, and we're on their speed dial and whenever uh, whenever we need to, we're just in comms with them.
1: And in terms of assets for the organisation itself, and, and, you know, I guess maritime, there's a bunch of boats there that would do you know, all the regulatory things we think of CASA doing for, for aviation. You know, I guess there's a fleet of boats and, and people who just work on, on the regulation side there. Uh, for search and rescue, I know there's a couple of jets. What's the, what's the fleet kind of look out internally and then how do you access extra assets?
0: We've obviously got our four Bombardier Challenger jets. We base them at three bases, Cairns, Essendon and Perth. They're available 24-7 um, and on contract to AMSA. On top of that, we basically have agreements with all the government aircraft, so police air wings, EMS helicopters, any of the basically dedicated health or search and rescue platforms. And then we also have contract agreements with general aviation companies to be able to draw on assets that they've got available to us. So ultimately we've got the ability to call on any commercial aircraft within the GA fleet and depending on what location we're we're working in or what task we're trying to achieve will tailor who we who we approach at the
1: at the time. The internal assets, those jets, how, how quickly do you have a notice to move for those?
0: We do. They're on 30 minutes by day and sixty minutes by night. So just due to the extra planning requirements for night missions, we've got a, a one hour response time, but thirty minutes response by day.
1: And my kind of experience of seeing those guys in action is when the Huey went in uh, last year uh, off uh, Newcastle and the one from Eston was launched and then sat off the coast and basically set up a search pattern out there. Coming from a helicopter world, when you think of, of fixed-wing endurance, you know, they've got a lot of endurance. So how, how much endurance do you normally plan for for these guys?
0: It's a trade-off between, obviously, fuel on board and endurance. They've got the ability to fuel up to an eight-hour mission endurance, we normally use them at about a six-hour mission endurance for for day-to-day use, uh, obviously with the ability to top them up before they get airborne for any,
1: any long-range missions. And what sort of kit have they got on board? What are you using to actually search?
0: They have dedicated observer windows for visual observation. They've also got an EO turret with both IR and electro-optics. They've got a full mission management system in the back, which can manage their search patterns and obviously controls their, their EO for for any target investigation and that sort of thing. They carry a out of SAR stores. So they've got SLBMBs, so self-locating data marker boys, which track drift of the ocean. They've got life rafts, food, water, survival kits, communications packs, so we can drop... If they get overhead a target and we're having trouble finding out what the nature of distress is, they can set up to drop satellite phones or VHF radios, and then we can get feedback from the survivors about what's required or what the problem is. They've also got VIDAR, so video detection anomaly and ranging. That's set up on a fixed camera system where as they fly over, it'll pick up anomalies in what it's seen and then alert the, the mission controller for that. It's optimised for a four-man life raft, so obviously set up to pick up you know, orange objects in the water. We're also working on technology for being able to home mobile phones. Yep. And it's obviously got a 406 and 1215 distress beacon homing set up as well.
1: Is there a standard profile? Like if it's over flat ground or over the ocean, is there a set height they normally go to to have best observation?
0: Depending on what they're doing. So if they're doing a radar search, they obviously have profiles based on the target and the ter- terrain and weather. But for visual observation, we use them below 1,000 feet down to 500 feet, depending on, again, what the target is. I mean, if you're searching for a uh, an aircraft in flat, open terrain, being down at 500 feet doesn't really add that much. But if you're looking for a person in the water, being down at 500 feet gives you that extra benefit, being, well, given how small the target will be. But general operations, the jet's really good for getting on scene quickly, transits at 450 knots and then for being on scene to be able to relay communications or to provide overwatch for any search aircraft that are operating underneath it so that's primarily its role is as the first response and then also to aid in our coordination of the ongoing response.
1: All right look if we come back from the I guess the front end back to the back end there when you turn up uh, are you doing you know rolling shifts? Uh, is a there- is it mainly you know? There's a lot of workers who are just on a on a day shift, and then you just have a skeleton crew at night. What's the the manning for, for AMSA, or well, the search and rescue part? So we,
0: sure. So we run twelve hour shifts, six thirty to six thirty, and we have six people in the office by day, four people in the office by night. So the team's made up of two aviators and two mariners at night, and three aviators and three mariners by day. The shift starts with a handover where. The outgoing team will pass over all the operational knowledge, uh, any ongoing incidents, and then any planned activities for the shift. And then basically, you take some time to get your head around that and get into the the understanding of everything for for the rest of the shift. We've got 32 staff, or 34, sorry, trained staff, as I said, which man both the aviation and the maritime ends of the room.
1: And when you walk in, is it? One big room with, uh, you know, big projectors. I think we are joking before I hit record that you see in the videos in the movies, you know, they walk into a control center in the US and you've got a map of the world with people seeing it, desks and phones and all that sort of gear. How would you describe it when you walk into the the setup there?
0: Yeah, pretty similar to that. It's an operations room, first and foremost. It's, uh, you know, got workstations for each of the SAR officers. It's got multiple screens for their computers, phones, wall-mounted displays, and pretty much it's got uh, all the bells and whistles that we need to be able to achieve the role. Set up in one main area, but with two obvious ends to the room, the maritime and the aviation, but the two work together hand-in-hand in hand through, through incident response.
1: I might have missed it. Did you say where, – where is it? Is it in Melbourne?
0: Sorry, the, the, the office is based in Canberra.
1: Okay, Canberra, yep.
0: Yeah, so at the, the AMSA head office.
1: And I'm picturing this, so tell me if i from right or not – a lot of the interaction that most of the general aviation community is going to have here in Australia is, is putting in SAR times and cancelling SAR times. So when you're talking about by day or, say, by night, where you've got two aviators and two maritime guys, are they the people who will be picking up the phone when we ring and, and cancel SAR time?
0: No, they're not. So SAR times are held up at Centaur, which is basically a function of air services in uh,
1: Brisbane,
0: co-located with the Brisbane FIR managers.
1: Gotcha. Okay. And then...
0: The actual Sensar database is managed up there, and then when it goes to phase, they'll ring over and hand it to us for follow-up.
1: Perfect. All right. No, that's just a question I had. I wasn't sure who picked up the phone when we actually cancelled it.
0: Until I worked here, I didn't understand how it worked either.
1: All right, so, so essentially then, all that day-to-day stuff of we go flying, we put flight plans in, you, you nominate a SAR time, cancel a SAR time, all that happens is basically filtered then at Sensar, and that's it within air services, and that's completely separate from you guys. You basically would then just pick it up when, obviously, that SAR goes overdue. If if the SAR is overdue, will air services do the initial ring-around to try and contact the person, or does that go straight to you guys?
0: The initial comms checks are done by the Sensar operators. They'll get an alert on their workstation. They'll then make an initial call to the pilot and if they can't get hold of the pilot then it'll get handed to us after
1: 15 minutes. Okay so let's talk about uh, if you use the same terms in terms of uh, alert phase and distress phase. If we're flying and we make a a mayday call what happens next I guess and and where do you guys get involved?
0: Look it depends on the nature of the, the emergency. So if you've had a comms failure or if you're not in normal comms if the resolution is likely to occur by you getting back in comms with air traffic, they'll likely hold the alert phase. If it's if it's based on an engine failure, if there's a high likelihood that you're going to force land, it'll get transferred to us.
1: Okay, and that's just then, in, just a phone call. They send or the ATC controller for the, for the area frequency to you guys, or what's what's the actual interface?
0: Yeah, so they they'll ring up and they'll give us advice of an aircraft that's. 100 miles south of Darwin has got smoke and fumes in the cockpit. They're returning to Darwin, ETA time 3.5. They've got 30 people on board or something like that. They'll give us the basic rundown of the emergency and then we'll confirm at that point who's holding the phase and then we'll basically shadow it, waiting for further information.
1: Okay, if we're on the ground, we're holding someone else's start time and the same thing again, they're overdue, we can't raise them, can't contact them. Who's then the best number? Do we go back through sensor, or do we go immediately to, to AMSAR to pass that sort of alert phase on?
0: Sure. SENSAR requires to speak for the pilot to be able to cancel the SAR. Yep. So they're not able to cancel the SAR based on someone else's advice. So if you're, holding it, if you're holding a flight note or if you've been designated a responsible person to notify someone, you should notify us straight away. We will take that information. We'll then start to make inquiries. And we can always go back to our traffic to get any flight plans or, or known contact with the aircraft from them.
1: I guess if it ramps up, or what's the process there? So, if we see with sensor, so fifteen minutes no contact, they pass it over to you guys. What sort of do you have fixed timeframes? Is that something you know you share, or how's it? What's the flow from there in terms of before you would launch assets?
0: We don't normally have timelines. We normally base it on intel and also. Level of concern. If we understand that the operations were low level power line search, an aircraft has failed to respond to an ops normal call. If it's failed to respond to a second ops normal call, it might get handed, or it'll get handed to us as a phase. And then if we're unable to immediately get hold of someone associated with the operations of the aircraft, we may immediately go to a distress phase and start to respond because there's enough concern there that, hey, look, this is an operation that has risk involved. It's, it's not normal for them not to to cancel ops, ops normal calls, so we'll start going down that path. Sometimes it can be based on how hard it is to get information to confirm your, your concern. Other times it can just, I guess, be a bit more obvious that, no, this is one we need to act on immediately.
1: Okay, and then uh, that's what I'm guessing, and you tap those other agencies then in, in terms of what's going to be the, the closest asset to, to get something on site?
0: Yeah, so the room's made up of people that have all come from industry. So we've got a broad, broad range of skills, a broad range of knowledge, and I guess we use that to sort of guide and temper how we respond to incidents. We've got the ability to reach out to, as I said, all all the government-based aircraft, so aircraft that are on contract to government, and... Depending on the situation, we may go straight to the nearest health authority and say, look, can we task one of your helicopters with a, an understanding that there's an aircraft in distress? We're unsure of the location or we might have you know, a rough location. And we'd like to get you out there ASAP. In the meantime, we'll start looking at intelligence to try and narrow down the search area and try and define the, the boundaries of where we need this aircraft to look if we think it's come to grief.
1: Often with the students, we talk about doing, you know, diversion and calling up and, and giving a flight plan amendment. Uh, and normally the background we say there is, hey, look, if you're going to cut the corner and you, you want to let someone know you're cutting the corner on that nav route so that they're not looking for somewhere where you've never actually gone to. How does that play out on, on your end? Do you get that flight plan amendment? Does that make any difference to, in terms of where you start searching?
0: Uh, it does and it doesn't. A lot of the time, air filed plans will get put through to us as an air filed plan. Flight plan amendments, you know, they're, they're, they're passed over to air traffic and they're held in that system, but it, it can be, I guess, lost in the system in, in, in some ways. But generally, we, we gather all of our information straight from air traffic as far as where the aircraft was last in contact, any radar hits that it got on it, any radio replays. We can have all of that sent down to us for, for interrogation and the ability to draw intel from it. So, yeah. We, we're able to get hold of flight plans and we are able to get hold of flight plan amendments and, and air-filed
1: plans as well. Because, yeah, that's normally the, the biggest reason i tell people to put it in is so that, you know, if you don't turn up, that people aren't looking for you where you haven't actually turned up. You've, you know, if you've cut the corner or changed your, your route. So I'm just hoping I was telling people the right thing.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. If, if you are going to vary your plans, certainly let people know. I guess the more people that know, the more likely it is that that information is going to be made available if something does go wrong. And it's obviously going to target us in the best area to provide assistance.
1: Luke, you mentioned earlier the, the SAR observers. On the website for AMSAR, they talk about a SAR observer uh, program. And I think there's a video somewhere that talks about you know, some of the training. What's that involved? How do you – are they all AMSAR employees or do other agencies send people to go get trained up as a SAR observers?
0: Our SAR observers are drawn from the SES.
1: So okay.
0: we actually run our observer training in major cities. And we do it for SES. We know they are a uh, volunteer force that we can draw upon when we need to, usually at short notice too. So normally, uh, if an incident occurs, your day one search will normally be with targeted assets. If it goes over into day two, that's generally where you're looking at a wider area. We start to draw on more assets that aren't dedicated to search and rescue, and that's where we need to get that bolstered workforce of of
1: air observers how long is the training? The,
0: the the course is a couple of days. It's run by um one of the sections within ANSA. They'll travel out there. They'll go through the theory components in the in the classroom about visual observation and how to observe targets in different conditions and what at what ranges. And then they'll actually go up and go for a flight and have a look at what different targets look like from the air. Obviously, some of those some of the people on the course have never been in an aircraft, so they'll need to I guess, try to familiarise themselves with how it feels, how it affects their visual acuity, whether they get airsick and all that sort of stuff. And then they'll start to do a couple of activities of trying to observe different types of aircraft, uh, different types of targets and training how to conduct visual observation from an aircraft effectively.
1: Probably off, tra- off topic, but I'm just thinking about that. Are you got guys looking at using you know sort of long-range drones or have you started using that or is that on the plan in terms of you know where it's AI-helped vision? You, you spoke about that other system that sort of helps cue people where to look for, for life. Is is there current sort of long-range UAVs?
0: There is investigation of it, but obviously being a small government agency, it's not really – we don't have the ability to, to – R&D or to investigate that sort of stuff but we certainly have relationships with companies and with other agencies that do use them and we we do certainly take an interest in how those assets and their sensors can be tailored for search and
1: rescue purposes Yep, no dramas. Okay you find the hopefully survivors, wreckage with the survivors with it when does AMSA step out and hand back over to the, and I guess who do you hand back over to?
0: So our responsibility is to get them to a place of safety. Once we've confirmed that there are survivors, it's still up to us to make sure that they come back to a place of safety. And that might be to winch someone from the water and bring them back to shore. It may be to take someone from a crash site and put them in a hospital. That's when we start to get to, to remove ourselves from, from the responsibility of the job. There are times where a crash site might be handed over to police for further investigation or a, an incident that it's assessed that time frame for survival has expired, then we will hand that over to police uh, to commence a body recovery search rather than us continuing with search and rescue.
1: And when do you bring ATSB in? A lot of the work is afterwards, but at what point do they start launching people to, to sites that? Do you, do you talk to the ATSB while you're searching?
0: Yeah, we do. We've got a requirement to notify ATSB. For any accident that we're made aware of or for any search that we commence for an overdue aircraft or anything that's likely to to have an outcome where they need to be involved, we will give them an early notification and we'll also keep them updated with information as it comes to hand so that they can assess whether it's worth them mounting an investigation immediately or whether they need to take any action regarding you know, grounding of fleets or any of that sort of flow-on stuff from the ATSB perspective.
1: Who pays for all this? You now, I know it's obviously a taxpayer, but there's been some pretty high-profile incidents of either people uh, from international, and you know, you know, there's a lot of ocean out west of Perth, or uh, I guess nuisance would be the right word, where people have been rescued due to, to possibly negligence. Is there a, yep. a, a passing on of costs? Or how does that, the cost get covered?
0: The manning of the room and the capability is based on a community service obligation. So it's funded by community service funding. However, there have been examples in recent times of people that have made hoax, mayday a who have been prosecuted and fined. But generally, the costs are footed just through government funding for lives. So it's it's uh, there's an international responsibility under ICAO and IMO to provide a search and rescue service, and it's funded from that requirement.
1: All right. What can aircrew do? I guess having been on the aircrew side and now sitting there in AMSAR and, and being on the on the search and the rescue side of things, what are things that we do poorly? What are the things we can do better to make that process run really, really smoothly when we do need it?
0: I think the biggest is to let people know what you're doing. And if that is filing a flight plan and a SAR time, then go ahead and do it. You might be flying, you know, OCTA or you might be flying VFR and not think you need to, but providing us with information, if something does go wrong, is always going to make the response better for you. Yes, we respond to people who fail to cancel their SAR, even though they're safe at an airfield, but I'd rather respond to that and have the information available to me if I need it than, you know, have people shy about lodging a flight plan and then have to try to search for someone where I've got no information available to help.
1: Have you changed, I don't know if you currently still fly at all, but you still do you still get airborne yourself?
0: No, I don't, actually. When I stopped instructing, I decided that uh, I guess it was time for me to, to step out of the cockpit, which made it really easy to make the transition into the role I'm in now. Um, and I guess there's elements of the role I'm in now that sort of steer me away from flying as well. I guess <laughs> the bad side of it. Yeah. far
1: too often yeah, yeah that's, that's fair enough because what i was going to ask is, is go down the track of you know if you did start flying again or if you were currently flying how you, you had changed or how you would change your behavior in terms of you know how much buffer to leave on side times or, or what you'd carry with you um, those sorts of things yeah
0: look it's an interesting point I, I was thinking about it just before that one of the worst things we have is someone that is worried about failing to cancel their SAR time. So they put it for four hours past their arrival time, but it means that it's not really in the forefront of their mind when they go through their post-flight routine, because it's not for another, you know, four hours. I think the half hour buffer works really well in that it's sort of, you're probably still in aviation mode when you get close to that time. It's still, you're still thinking about it. There's quite a few times where, Someone set a SAR time for so long in the future that they're back home in bed. The company's shut down. There's no one at the ops desk. And it's really hard to get hold of someone to to get the, to get confirm their safety. But it also means that any SAR response is not going to happen until four hours after the planned arrival time. So that's just building in an unnecessary delay. I think, yeah, 30 minutes seems to work well. As I said, build it into your post-flight routine where you're going to cancel your SAR. There's a lot of times where you speak to someone and they go, oh, yeah, look, you know, something happened on arrival that we didn't expect and therefore they forgot to cancel their SAR. So I think developing that routine, having a certain activity that you do in your post flight that reminds you to cancel your SAR time is a good idea. One of the things that really makes it difficult for us is when your flight might be planned to arrive at four o'clock in the afternoon, but you set your SAR time at Seven o'clock that night, and it means that we've already lost daylight in being able to provide assistance. We don't get notified until it's dark, and then it's up to us to, obviously, with the reduced capabilities that we've got, try to commence a search overnight.
1: We use uh, spider spire tracks where we are, uh, so I guess it gives us another layer of, of of tracking and protection. But often thinking when I'm putting that time in is. I'm going to be sitting in that paddock bleeding uh, possibly until that SAR time ticks over and someone comes looking for me. So I'm always kind of weighing up the, I guess, the the hassle of having to update it airborne if I'm I'm running late versus having, you know, sitting there waiting for someone to to start looking.
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, as you mentioned, if if you are still flying when your SAR time expires, just jump on the radio and update it. It's no skin off anyone's nose. And as you say, it then means that the SARV response is still going to be as timely as it can be. When you said spider tracks, obviously spider tracks has got an alerting service to it. I guess the other thing that I learned from being in this role is be aware of your survival equipment, understand how it works, know how to activate your beacon, know what a beacon sounds like, and yeah, be aware of what systems your aircraft has and how to activate them if you need to.
1: Okay, that's probably a good point, unless you want to cover anything else there in terms of misconceptions, but... Otherwise, we can talk about beacons.
0: I think that's it for misconceptions. I was, yeah, yeah.
1: All right, well, let's launch into, into beacons in terms of, yeah, what are the important things to pass on from your side of the fence as a search and rescue centre uh, in terms of how we use beacons day-to-day and then also in terms of emergency response?
0: There's a couple of different types of beacons. Um, emergency located transmitters, ELTs, personal locator beacons, PLBs, and emergency position indicating radio beacons, EPIRBs. Within aviation, ELTs are fitted to aircraft, PLBs are carried, and EPIRBs are for the maritime world. They're specifically designed to work in water or work better in water, I should say. For aviators, you're more likely to come across ELTs and PLBs. Over over time, they've obviously developed and come a long way. The ELTs fitted to aircraft, They're activated by a G-switch or sometimes by a uh, switch in the cockpit. And the PLBs need to be physically activated by the operator. Whatever beacon you've got, whatever beacon you're using for the aircraft, should be registered appropriately with AMSA um, and should meet the CASA regulations for carriage. So I guess the benefit of registering it with us, not only does it fulfil the requirements of CASA, but it also gives us the information so that if we get a detection Regardless of what information we get from the actual satellite detection we can get your registered data and go all right we know his name we know they fly particular aircraft and we've also got a couple of emergency contacts as a pilot you know you hop into an aircraft expecting that the ELT and the aircraft registered properly I guess what I'd suggest is that if you hold a position in the company that's responsible for those aircraft it's up to you to make sure that they're registered properly and that the appropriate maintenance Procedures are there to register them and test them.
1: Is that a frequent thing? How often would you find that the registration details are are incorrect?
0: For ELTs, it's not so bad. We we do get a lot that they've got an inbuilt coding, so we can have the registration of the aircraft coded to the beacon. But I guess the more they're fitted, taken out and put in other aircraft, the more that coding is not correct. The registration, though, is what provides us with who the operating company is, the best people to contact if there's an emergency, and what it does is just reduces the time for us to respond. The way the satellite system works is that the beacons have now gone to the 406 frequency for satellite communications, and they've still got a localised 1215 homing frequency. So that 406 frequency that gets detected either by the COSPAS SARSAT system or the new MEOSAR system provides us with the alert that it's been activated. Once we receive that, we may or may not get a position with it, depending on how it was detected by the satellites. Now, without a position, that registration data gives us the ability to contact someone and find out what the operations of the aircraft are. Once we've found that out, we can then start initiating a response and obviously targeting the right area. Over, over time, we'll get the position, but, yeah, to be able to get a response going ASAP and to to know what the target is, who's likely to be on board and what operations they were conducting, that beacon registration is
1: the first information that we've got. How accurate can you get, you know, after a couple of satellite passes, how accurately can you narrow down that location?
0: So Neosar is a a new system, the Middle Earth Orbiting Satellites. They're about 28,000 kilometres. They more of a triangulation method. So rather than the old system of the the low-Earth orbiting satellites that used to go overhead every 90 minutes, the middle-Earth orbiting satellites basically stare at a large area of the surface. And in the same way that GPS and RAIM has five satellites that that work together to pick up a position, the meo system has multiple satellites staring at the one location able to triangulate a position. So the accuracy of that I guess the timeliness of detection is improved and the accuracy is supposed to be within about 5 to 10 kilometres. Over time, that tightens up. With a GPS-enabled uh, beacon, though, the encoded positions are down to 120 metres accuracy. So yeah. it's always best to have a GPS chip in, a, in your PLB. So if you're going to buy one for an extra 50 to to $100, go for the GPS option. It gives a very accurate position pretty much right from the outset.
1: There's... A reference in ARP uh, that talks about on startup and shutdown that everyone's supposed to check one two one five. I don't know how many people do, but does that still hold value in, I guess, an age where we're using 406 beacons?
0: It probably holds benefit in the fact that if your beacon's active in the aircraft and you weren't aware of it, it'll alert you to that. So if you're conducting your startup procedures and while you're going through your things, you monitor 121.5, you may actually detect that your beacon's active. And that's what I mentioned before about as a pilot, you should know what a beacon sounds like so that you can obviously be aware of it and start action if you do hear one. Yeah, it's still appropriate because as I said, the the beacons still have this 1215 localised homing frequency. And the more people that monitor 1215, the more likely we are to pick up a beacon that hasn't been detected by satellites or that, that is inadvertently activated. There's often a time where someone's doing maintenance on an ELT or maintenance on an aircraft, they change the battery over and it activates the ELT. Now, that aircraft might be tucked away in a hangar, so the only signal that's coming out is a, a, small, a small lobe that's coming out from the, the hangar door. It may not get picked up for a, by a satellite, but that 1215 mat, might be picked up by an aircraft that's on the apron.
1: You just remind me, actually, because that's the last time we did talk, is probably... I Might mean, have even eighteen months ago now. You rang up and it just happened to me that I answered the phone, and you asked us to go actually down to the hangar and and, and put on one decimal five to see if there was anything in the area because you'd had a report. So is that something you would frequently do?
0: It's something that we can do, and it's sort of one of those ones that's available to us if the situation dictates. If we've got low level hearings in the vicinity of an airfield, we've got no satellite to suggest that it's you know a proper deployment of a beacon is likely to be something under maintenance or something tucked away in a shed, uh, then, yeah, being able to get someone on the ground to listen out on 1215 may be able to give us enough information to say, yeah, look, we believe it's at the airfield there and we can get either ground homing equipment or aerodrome reporting officer to go around and try to find which aircraft it's in.
1: Which probably brings us to, I've seen at least one you know, AW139 deployed to a rubbish dump to go on and look for a, uh, a beacon that's going off because it was, it was just thrown out and, I don't know, corroded and, and started transmitting or was bumped. Uh, again, What did he, he talks about disposal and, and how frequently it happens in, in terms of trying to track down a, an old beacon somewhere.
0: We're getting better with that. I guess we've started to realise that with MIOSAR, beacons that are thrown out don't tend to be picked up by the satellites. So if we start to get 1215 hearings, with no 406 detections, we can start to sort of localise where it's coming from and start to go, yeah, look, it's likely to be disposed of. Additionally, any of the 406 satellites that we have, sometimes we are able to get a detection that actually plots in a a waste facility, and we can say pretty safely that we we know it's been disposed of. The beacons have got a 10-year battery expiry, so we sort of go through waves where we start to see beacons of a certain expiry age being thrown out, I guess... The important thing is that if you are going to throw your beacon out, yes, it's turned off when you throw it out, but being crushed in a compactor can obviously set them off. Being able to unscrew them, disable the battery or remove the battery means that that won't happen and it'll stop us being called to waste facilities to try and
1: find active beacons. And if you updated your register, that would basically cancel that particular beacon out anyway, or do you still have to respond to every activation?
0: If it's registered and it's been registered as sold, we've got the ability to call the previous owner and confirm when it was thrown out. Normally, they sort of activate within the first week of being thrown out. (laughs) Um, So what day's bin collection? Oh, yesterday, right. And did you throw your beacon out? Yeah, I did. I I cleaned out my boat or aircraft after the last trip and I might have thrown it out. So yeah, Uh, registration detail still does help us with the intel gathering for um, inadvertent beacons.
1: The most recent YouTube video up on the AMSOC channel there is uh, someone from NASA talking about a new type of ELT that they're trialling with astronauts just because that's who they've got available for when they come back and splash down in the ocean. Can you talk about any sort of technology stuff that's happening in the near future or far future in terms of search and rescue?
0: Of course. So the MEOSAR system allows for two-way communications now. The second generation beacons um, have a two-way messaging feature, which, you know, we've sort of seen in a lot of the, Satellite enabled alerting devices, and I'll speak to them in a minute. But two way communications gives us the ability to reach out to those in distress and at least acknowledge that their alert's been received. But we can also get information that'll then help us to respond more effectively to the distress that they're in. Satellite enabled alerting devices, things like Spot or Iridium Extreme, Garmin Inreach, those sort of devices provide that two way communications and it goes back through the emergency, the International Emergency Response Centre in Houston, who we had an understanding with that any satellite-enabled devices that are activated in Australia will come through us to coordinate. So they call us, pass us the details, and then we look after the response to that device. Um, the two-way messaging that they provide means that the person in distress might be able to message and say, look, I've broken my leg and I won't be able to walk, or... I'm in a four-wheel drive that's got a flat tyre, and, and that means that immediately we know that there's no one and imminent danger. They actually just need assistance to help with a flat
1: tire That's going to be huge cost-saving in terms of, you know, not, not sending assets if they're not needed.
0: I think saving the asset to where it's needed is more important than the actual cost of it, yeah.
1: Okay. The new SpaceX, the, the Starlink network, have you heard anything about that? Is that going to have any kind of tie-in with search and rescue or it's just going to be purely a a telecom thing
0: i'm just trying to think i do so the system system's based on the the galileo constellation that's currently being launched there's uh, a number of satellites already in orbit for that system and there's still more to go there are a couple of commercial launches that do play into that system but i'm not actually sure about the spacex stuff
1: yeah, I think they're going to have several thousand really, really sort of low altitude ones for for the sort of low latency internet. Yeah, wonder what sort of coverage they give. But yeah. yeah, fair enough. Look, it's, uh, as I said, I guess the aim initially was to just take the curtain back a little bit for uh, us in, in the GA world or whoever's listening in terms of what actually happens in the background when you know we pick up a phone. At least I understand now it goes to the sensor, and so it's different to you guys. And then the same thing with that interface with a, a Mayday call going through air services and then you guys are on the, on the back end of that coordinating the response. So it just helps kind of give a bit of a, a picture of, of who's who and, and where things are at. So Luke, thanks very much, mate, for the, yeah a bit of insight. And I guess before we leave up, it's sort of a platform there to, if there's any other messages you want to get across from the AMSA side to the aviation community.
0: Look, I guess uh, the big one is, Tell someone what you're doing. Give the information. Don't keep it a secret. There's no reason to. And don't be afraid of, of lodging flight plans and SAR times. They are often will help us to get the information required if there is a situation that occurs. It might not be related to the SAR time and its expiry, it might be related to making a distress call, but the flight plan that you've lodged might be able to give us some more information to help in that situation too. So every shift that we walk into is unique. We take handover, we, we don't know what job's going to be underway. But we go to work to save, to save lives and knowing that basically gives us the fulfilment we need. As with any job involving responding to distress, there's always going to be good days and bad days. And we unfortunately see a lot of people on the worst day of their lives, but to be able to help them in that situation is just so satisfying and it makes us proud to be part of the search and rescue system.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much, Luke.
0: Hey, good to talk to you, Mick.
1: That was Luke Brandley, again, a Senior Search and Rescue Officer with the Australian Maritime Safety Authority. Hopefully you never need to call on Luke and the rest of the search and rescue team at AMSA or your country's equivalent. Thankfully, though, that expertise and capability is there in the background as a no of protection for us, day and night. There is a heap of information in there that goes beyond what you can pick up from just reading the search and rescue pages from the en route supplement or aeronautical information pubs. One of the really useful things I got from it is that it just helps to humanise and picture what is happening at the other end of the phone when you need to call these guys and ladies. It's likely it's going to be a pretty stressful time anyway, but it just makes it that much less of a barrier to to pick up the phone and talk to them early if you're uncertain about one of your aircraft. The more information they have and and the earlier they get it, then it just increases the chance for a, a good outcome. So thanks, Luke. I really appreciate that. Thanks also to Kellyanne at the communications desk at AMSA for helping to get that approved and signed off. Now, here's a, a challenge for you. If you've just listened to Luke's interview, when was the last time that you looked closely at the location and the operation for the switch of the ELT that's installed in your aircraft? If you closed your eyes now and basically pretended for a moment that you were in your normal crew seat, would you be able to reach a handout and know where to go to activate your beacon? If you do, that's awesome. If you're not 100% sure, then that's your homework. Go and track it down for the aircraft that you fly. Send me a photo. We can compare notes. And if you've ever actually had to activate your ELT for real, then I'd love to know what happened and what the, the story was. So drop me an email with a story at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. We'll leave a comment under the, this episode on the website. AOPA has a, a really good informational webpage on ELTs. I'll include a link to that in the blog post for this episode. Also, link out to the Search and Rescue Resource page on the Australian Maritime Safety Authority website. I've collected a bunch of related videos for everything we've just been talking about and put that on the blog post as well. If you're an instructor, then I, you know, it might be a good resource to point students towards. And that's at rotarywingshow.com. And then look for episode 87. This episode, like all the others, is brought to you thanks to the following awesome people. Rendell, Michael, Jason, Peter, Tony, Kevin, Heath, Gareth, Chris, Jake, Eric, Kirillen, Shannon, Mark, John, Hal, AJ, Jack, Michael, Brent, Jason, Bill, and Mike, There is a support page up. It links across over to Patreon. You can find that at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. This is very much a homegrown endeavor. I'm going to do it regardless, but I really do appreciate the help covering some of the the bandwidth costs that you guys are, are really starting to rack up. But thank you so much for listening, giving up your time to come and hang out again for a little bit. I'll be back in the next episode with a discussion about first solo flights.